Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So your name is Terry Thies. It is. And you are a wine importer. That's what they say. How did you get started with that gig? I wanted to be in the wine business. I mean, most of us headbutt our ways into the wine business because we like wine. And we're trying to get somebody to pay us so we can indulge our habit. Um, I started in wholesale. And the wholesaler that I worked for bought German wine from two supplier slash importers. So... We had good stuff, and I had a local reputation in Washington, D.C. as being one of the go-to German wine guys. And what era is this? What decade? This is the mid-80s, you know, because I started in the wine business in 1983, and we were starting to sell German wine kind of 85, 86 or so. So I was happy to do it. We did a decent piece of business. But I remembered my friends that I had made in Germany when, during the 10 years that I lived there, and I thought, you know what, I'd kind of like to do this myself. So I went to the owner of the company and said, what would you tell me if I asserted to you that I could double or triple our German wine business and double the margin? He said, what's the catch? And I said, well, it entails a small upfront investment. He said, how small? And I said, well, send me to Germany for a couple of weeks and I'll put a portfolio together and we can be both importer and distributor and we can take the two tiers and collapse them into one, but keep both of the profit margins. So he sent me over for a week and uh, I came back and put this little tiny offering together and the rest is history, I suppose. But, you know, so my initial argument to do it was uh, financial, but of course the real reason I wanted to do it was because it was, the, it was the, nor it was, what's the word? It was the North star that I had been steering my career toward. It was the thing I knew I wanted to do. It was the thing that moved me the deepest and it was the thing that I knew would be sustainable. Being a wholesale salesperson or wine manager, I knew was not going to be sustainable for me because, well, two things. I didn't like selling wines I didn't like to drink. And I knew that sooner or later I was going to flunk the politics with suppliers because unfortunately, I don't do that sort of thing very well. And you feel it's easier to have your own personality as an importer. In yeah. fact, it's probably encouraged. <clears throat> no question. Uh, and being an importer, in a sense, you know, protects you from that really kind of awful feeling of having to make numbers on a mundane wine. So I'm not that good of a salesperson. So I put myself into a position where I was only able to sell that which I believed powerfully in. So it wasn't like selling. 
It was just trying to infect other people with my passion. And incidentally, if you'd like to buy some, I'll send some to you. You get started, you go there for a week, and you sign Willie Schaefer as one of the original five, so it feels like you kind of had done some scouting work or knew some people before, because that's, you know, one of the greatest producers in the world. <laughs> yeah, but nobody knew that then. You know, I mean, Willie Schaefer was completely under the radar. It's just a little two-hectare estate in Grach. And, you know, I had been pounding the pavement over in Germany just as an amateur, and eventually kind of had my own list of my favorite producers, and from trial and error and just lots and lots of prospecting. And I did it on my free time. I mean, that's basically how I spent vacations. So the first people that I wanted to work with were the people on my short list of top producers. Some of them already had importers in the United States. But the ones who didn't, those are the ones that I basically beat a path towards. And what had brought you to Germany originally? How did you find yourself there? Uh, in my middle school years, my father was stationed in Munich as the director of the European division of the voice of America. Does that also mean he was a spy? <laughs> no, that was, um, I don't know if I should say this, but that was radio Liberty and radio free Europe, which even then it was an open secret that they were CIA funded. As far as I knew the, but the operating budget for, uh, VOA came out of the United States information agency, which believe it or not, for some reason was in the umbrella, the sort of the budget umbrella of the, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare for some strange reason. So, so I was over there, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, incredibly formative years. And you, you find your pack at that point. And in some cases, you've, your pack is basically the pack that will have you. And, but I found my pack and it was, you know, it was kind of with the hippies and the musicians and those kinds of people. So I really enjoyed Munich and always wanted to go back at some point. So middle of my sophomore year of college, I took what I intended to be a break. And I always planned to return to college and then never did. But uh, my then girlfriend and me went over to Europe and we did the bumming around backpack stuff and naturally went back to Munich and ran out of money faster than we thought. So got stuck in Munich because we needed to get ahead financially before we could literally, before we could move. And, uh, we got work with the Department of Defense, which hired civilian components in those days in Munich. Oh, okay. So you and were working for the like a military. Company. Yeah, working for the DoD, uh, reporting to McGraw Cassern, and so for better or worse, we never actually really did get very far ahead financially. So we couldn't enact any of our grand plans to pick up and I don't know go to Asia or whatever it is that that we thought we were going to do in our befuddled twenty-something minds. So. Um, as we were just beginning, it took about three, four, five years, and we were just beginning to start feeling like, okay, we can, we can take vacations now. We have a little bit of extra money in the kitty. First, we discovered we really liked it. Second, I discovered wine. And how did that come about? Oh, coincidence and just happenstance. I mean, we drank wine, mostly plonk. Uh, and one time, completely uh, by accident, I brought home a bottle of Riesling. It was probably the first one I'd ever drunk. It was, I know it well, it was a 71 Droner Rothaird Cabinet, Riesling, from the big co-op in, uh, in Berncastle. And I just never tasted anything like it. And it was so different from anything that I thought wine could be. It had all this flavor, but it wasn't fruits or flowers. It was just kind of rocks and herbs and, and something uh, indescribable. And when I tasted it, I was kind of fascinated and sobered. The first thing I thought was, I can't 
find my way to something like this again by accident. I need to learn at least the minimums so I can figure out what the hell this was and how to find my way back to it by design and not just hope that, that I'll, I'll come across another bottle like this at some point in the next five years. So that's when I started doing a little reading. And it was, you know, there was a pretty decent amount of literature about German wine in those days. And there was Johnson's Wine Atlas, and there was a lot of books. There was Cyril Ray, there was Frank Schoenmacher. Lachine paid a decent amount of attention to German wines. So I was able to, uh, I was able to put together, you know, the foundation of some, at least enough knowledge that would help me when I was looking on shelves of wine stores. And then pretty quickly thereafter, I realized these regions are really close and I could travel to them and I wanted to see them. I mean, the pictures in the wine atlas made it look really pretty. So off we went. But does that beginning sort of imply that your parents weren't wine people? Funnily enough, they weren't. And I don't remember wine being on the table very much in our house. Um, so I didn't come from any kind of a wine background. In fact, my father, who died when I was 17, had he lived uh, and lived long enough to see that I ended up with a career in the wine industry, probably would have you know, scratched his chin and said, well, I'll be damned. How in the world did that happen? You know, because uh, he probably figured that I'd end up trying to be a rock musician. And, and why didn't you? Actually? Why didn't I? <laughs> uh, the real reason, Levy, it doesn't paint me in the best possible light. I loved playing and I loved playing music with other people, but I didn't like, uh, I didn't like the loud volume. I didn't like the cigarette smoke. I didn't like hump and gear. I didn't like basically the slog. And I did the slog and I realized it's, it's so not fun that it's actually taking away the pleasure of playing. So I sort of looked at it and I felt like if I'm going to preserve the pleasure of playing the instrument, I'm going to have to do it uh, as an amateur. What was your dad like? He was a sweetheart. My dad was a really gentle man. He was uh, very much a kind of a liberal in the Adlai Stevenson, Mario Cuomo mold. In fact, when I heard Cuomo's speech at the Democratic Convention in 84, I just felt like it was the ghost of my father. His words and his intonations and uh, even his cadences coming out of Cuomo's mouth. I was very moved by that. And so in that sense, I looked up to him. And when he died, in, in many respects, I mean, the things that his friends said about him to me, I said, did you realize that your father was a remarkable man? That there were very few people who were as, as essentially good-natured. He was a mensch, you know? And he was an intelligent man. So from him, I internalized in some way, shape, or form that the life of the mind was a legitimate way to live. Did you have siblings? A younger sister by six years. And six years is a long time. So there was really, we were never playmates or even companions. And it sounds like you moved a few times. Oh, we moved a lot. Yeah, I was always a new kid in school. We were never, I was never more than three years in any one place. Were they always English-speaking places? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, you could even say that New Delhi was an English-speaking place because that was essentially everyone spoke it, and it was the second language. But I was just a little teeny kid there. I Did was, it leave an imprint? I mean, Huge India. imprint. Yeah, it's a huge imprint. I have a lot of memories of those years. They were fantastic years. Is that why you like Shoei Reba, for instance? That must be it. 
that must be this it. goes great with curry absolutely they were uh, they were great years i mean they were fantastic fun years and i saw things you know, simply unimaginable things i mean my kid's sister for her second birthday had a guy with a trained bear at her birthday party this kind of thing just happened and we had a papaya tree in our front yard and our gardener used to shimmy up the tree call to me and then I would stand below with my arms outstretched and he would simply drop papayas into my hands. It was so cool. And the funniest stuff would happen. Our address was 172 golf links because there was a golf course behind our house. And so there were a lot of trees in the golf course and there were a lot of monkeys in the trees. So it was by no means unusual for me to look out my window and see monkeys in the yard with golf balls. So apparently what I was told was the monkeys would you know, kind of scamper down out of the trees, steal the golf balls and then run off laughing. So, and you know, when you're a kid, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you're not incredulous about anything. I mean, somebody coming to my sister's party with a trained bear, that was like, well, yeah, that's sure. That's not remarkable at all. You know, so oh, those years were wonderful. We didn't have TV. So I really had to make my own entertainment. I became a really good cricket player because cricket was the game. So I would gather all the, the scamps and ragamuffins and kind of formed an ad hoc cricket league and we would play cricket uh, in the green in front of the house after school. So this is pretty weird stuff. I haven't thought about it for a long time. But no, India was a lot of fun. I really liked it. In terms of that life of the mind, were there certain authors that you thought, oh, I, like, I like reading this guy? Uh, my father sent me off to camp in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school with the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. He didn't say anything to me about them. He just said, you'll probably have some time on your hands to read, so here's something I think you might like. And I didn't really understand a lot of what I was reading, but some part of it touched me. And when I, when I was in high school, I was in northern New Jersey, in fact, Leonia High School. And having come from Europe where, you know, being a hippie was nothing really remarkable. It was about two years too early in Leonia. It was still kind of, you know, jocks and greasers at that point. So I was very much an outcast. So the pack that would have me were the geeks and the nerds and the honors English students, so to speak. So that's kind of where I got into reading and enjoyed words very much and particularly enjoyed the, the teachers I was fortunate enough to have in high school who helped inculcate my love of words. Were there certain styles of writing that you thought, yeah, dig this? In those days, I really liked kind of florid writing. Mm. Never liked Hemingway. Mm -hmm. Still don't. Um, but I did like kind of lyrical, musical, colorful prose. And that has changed a little bit over time. But yeah, that was the kind of writing that I really enjoyed. And then, of course, when I first read wine literature... You probably remember the great Alexis Bespalov collection called The Fireside Book of Wine. It's interesting because, you know, his son lives in, in New York uh, now and is in the wine business. That's but interesting. I've actually never read that book, no. But I know what you're talking it's about. It's an though. amazing collection because it, it gathered together a lot of the writing of the kind of latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. That generation, Morris Healy, H. Warner Allen, Andre Simon, who wrote with extravagant emotion about wine. And that was some of the earliest stuff that I read. So again, the message that I internalized from that was wine was an especially numinous object of beauty to which the proper response was to be extravagantly moved and thrilled and delighted. So 
in that sense, I felt like I was given permission to respond to wine that way, which was the way I would naturally have responded to it anyway, but I might have felt like I was some kind of a freak for thus responding if I hadn't been permitted to do so by this bygone generation of writers. Because in a way, you might not find that in the culture around you, especially in the 70s, 80s. No, that's for sure. About wine. People yeah, wouldn't no, say like, hey man, this is ecstatic. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, you know, and I think that that may still not really be the case. There's a lot of very matter-of-fact wine writing. Um, there's a lot of matter-of-fact wine writing, and, and one of the things that I hoped to do with Reading Between the Wines was to pay that favor back by, uh, if I could, conferring or encouraging people to respond to wine that way if that was their natural inclination. You know, I don't think anybody has to pass any kind of soul test uh, in order to demonstrate to me or anyone else that they're into wine. But those of us who are sensitive, and sensitivity is simply something that we are given as a, as a perk of temperament. It's not something we earn. It's not a virtue. It's just how it is to be us. People who are sensitive often feel like they need to hide a lot of themselves from the world because if they express their uh, spontaneous natural sensitivity, they feel foolish. We feel foolish. And because we're wearing our hearts on our sleeve or we're too emotional or we're too touchy-feely, that's a, a really vile phrase in my view of things. So one of the things, like I say, I hoped to do with Reading Between the Wines was to encourage those of us who are naturally touchy-feely, like, hey, if you find yourself being moved by a wine, maybe even weepy, guess what? That's all right. That's okay. You're not alone. There's others of us who feel that way. And I can't imagine any reason why one shouldn't feel that way any more than, look, what's music, Levy? It's just an arrangement of tones forming melodic patterns, harmonic patterns, rhythmic patterns. It's an arrangement of tones. There's no reason to suppose a priori that that arrangement of tones could work upon a human heart and soul and move us to the depths that it does. And yet it does. So, but it's commonplace and we expect that that is what music ought to do, but we don't expect that that's what wine ought to do. So again, I said in the book, wine is music in the form of water. And so it can move us tremendously. And, uh, and it's just, it's the way certain people receive beauty. I mean, we, we just, we feel roused, curious, grateful, unworthy. We have that rather melancholy sense when we're in the grips of great beauty that we are wasting much too much of our lives. We are suddenly in a, in a position of feeling a very charged reality. And then we got to go back to ordinary life, which occupies quite a bit of our time and energy and bandwidth. Were you the type of child that had imaginary friends? Oh, totally. Yeah, I had, I had two imaginary friends. Uh, Check It and Piddle Puddle were their names. I had them. I remember them from being about five or six years old. They were like very stout companions uh, because them being my imaginary friends, they let me be the boss. And when I was a kid, I really just wanted to be the boss. My approach to the world was we would just have so much fun if you would do things my way. <laughs> you know, one of the things that is interesting is that a lot of times when people describe marijuana, they talk about the quality of the high. Yeah. But that rarely happens with wine, where people talk about the qualities of the wine, not the qualities of the high. But it seems like your uh, writing is the closest I know of to trying to describe the, 
the quality of the sensation, let's say, of the of drinking wine, as opposed to saying, I mean, you do say, hey, tangerine, lemon, you know, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it seems like there's often a desire to, in a sort of almost transcendental way, often try to describe the feeling of of what this does. Is that fair to say? It's entirely fair to say. I'm a little bit embarrassed about how I might have done it 25 years ago because, you know, I was forcing it a little bit. I was pushing it. Wine does affect the imagination. And of course, the imagination's job is to imagine. So, uh, but I had something that I felt I needed to prove, I suppose, and that it influenced my writing. I'm talking going back now 25 or 30 years. And who would you be proving it to? I would be proving it to anyone... um, unfortunate enough to encounter it, I suppose. You know, I mean, anybody who read my writing in this place or that, uh, and I sort of wanted to shake them by the shoulders and and say, now see here, it's okay to be emotional about wine. Now you listen. Um, These days, it's very easy and seamless. As you said, there are wines, they come onto the palate, and immediately and spontaneously, I want to catalog their nuances, components, etc., you, de- you do the deconstructing thing. There are other wines that come onto the palate, and for whatever reason, I don't know why, it sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. Immediately, I'm thinking about images. I remember once, we talked about Shoyreba a moment ago, I remember once a Shoyreba comes onto the palate, and the, the very first thing I thought about was just clowns at the circus doing their bumps and their pratfalls. And so I wrote that in the tasting note. That was the truest thing I could say about how that wine was being apprehended in that moment. And I just left it there. You know, how many times, if you're describing a wine like a Shoyreva, can you repeat its signature elements? It's, it's sage, it's grapefruit, it's cassis. Like Mosul wines are apples and lime and herbs. And you want to just have like a dingbat that you can use in place of repeating those things infinitely and endlessly. So that was the truth of that wine for me. Now, you can do it really badly. And... I'm sure that there are times when I do it really badly. It can be twee. It can be something that you use as a kind of a something to hide behind if you're really not all that good a taster. That doesn't seem like your problem, though. I hope it's not. I mean, if I can manage the, if I can manage the vivid image in such a way that the reader forgives my being oblique, particularly that reader who really wanted to know what the wine tasted like, if I can persuade that reader to forgive me for telling her not what she came wanting to hear, but what it was like to drink the wine, then thank you, world, I'm happy. But I mean, a lot of writing endeavors to take people on a trip mm-hmm. that they didn't necessarily ask for, right? right? And the right. idea is that you're supposed to be grateful later that that trip happened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of artistic writing. Yeah. I'm going to take you around and I'm going to bring you back like the old Zen saying, to, to get east, go west. So you're in D.C., yeah. it's the 80s. Yeah. Did you feel like you had something to prove? Or? Partly, but not really. I, what I felt was that my mission, as I saw it at that time, was to make the world safe for great German Riesling. And I felt that one of the reasons that it was a hard slog was that German Riesling really didn't have its champions there, there wasn't a Kermit or a Bobby Catcher or uh, Bob Chatterton or, you know, any those kinds of people didn't exist for German Riesling. Riesling from Germany was sold the way Bordeaux was sold. 
It was basically lists of the so-called great estates, and someone would receive and compile it, add a markup, pass it on to the next person who added a markup, and pass it on to the next person. And so there was nobody with a personal stake in any of this. It was a whore's game, actually, to see who could flog the commodity at the lowest price. And I mean, I knew this because I watched people write their orders. And, you know, they'd say, well, I, I want to have Fun uh, Simmer and Rowenthaler bike and Cabinet, and this guy is selling it for $48, and this guy's selling it for $46, and this guy's selling it for $39.95, so I'm going to get it from the last guy. So I thought, well, no wonder German Riesling is dead in the water. Who is motivated? Who's expressing enthusiasm? The guy that gets the order is the guy that makes the least money on the wines. So, you know, where's the profit motive? So I kind of looked at it and I thought, okay, I get a chance to do some things that I really enjoy doing. I get to advocate passionately, which comes second nature. I get to maintain my contacts with my buddies in Germany. I get to actually get paid for going and tasting wine, which continues to blow me away. Uh, Did someone point out to you at some point that that was a possibility? When did you say, oh, I could make money doing this? You know, I, I modeled myself after the importers whom I knew, and I watched them do what they did, and I saw how happy their lives were. And But still, you know, after all these years, Levy, and it's going on 30 years now, there will be days on every tasting trip where I'll kind of pause for a moment, let the fugue wash over me, and actually sit there thinking, I am making money right now. Someone's paying me to do this. I'm sitting here drinking Leo Altzinger's wines, having an experience equivalent to that of having been embraced by the Dalai Lama or something. And, and I realize this is how I make a living, partly. This is amazing. This is absolutely incredible. You'll hear sometimes, athletes will sometimes say it, baseball players. Uh, they'll sometimes say, yeah, once in a while I just, you know, kind of, it ain't about the money, it's not about anything. I'm out there playing a game. And they're paying me to do it. So that kind of gratitude is something I don't have to... Are you making basketball player money, Terry? I'm just curious. <laughs> is, that, is that what the implication is? Yeah, that's, that's for sure the implication. Anybody that, you know, we, we get uh, frequently contacted by people uh, in various types of midlife crises who want to do something meaningful for a living and they come out of law or finance or something. And they'll, they'll call or they'll email and say, you know, it looks like what you do is really fun. And that's what I think I'd like to do with my life. And my, the first question I ask them is, how much of a pay cut are you willing to take? Right. How do you feel about those shoes? <laughs> like, exactly. Are you attached to those Prada shoes? Because uh, uh, you're probably not going to be buying another pair. That's right. Exactly. So, so that's, that's how it is. Nobody makes money, but we're, we, are, we are rich in good fortune. So DC in the eighties, who was around and what was the scene like? Oh, it was a lot of, you know, DC in the eighties was a kind of a, it was a bit of a wild west because the laws for the distribution of alcoholic beverages are very liberal in Washington. So there were a lot of merchants who had set up shop there rather more perhaps than the market could absorb. But on the other hand, a lot of people came to Washington. The demographics were favorable. It was a fun place to do business. One wasn't hamstrung by regulation. So, yeah, a lot of people kind of passed through town. And there were really good, smart retail people. I mean, imagine, you know, David Shulkneck was in retail in Washington in those days. Um, I worked for a wholesaler who was Bobby Catcher's wholesaler. And Bobby is one very smart cookie. 
So the people whom I was exposed to were really people I could just admire and respect. And so that was great for me. You know, I really had, they, they didn't set about to be my mentors, but I certainly could look at how they did what they did and the satisfaction that they seemed to osmose doing what they did and, and feel, I'd like to do that. When did you first meet Bobby Ketcher? Almost immediately when I got back from Germany. I mean, I met Bobby, I came back from Germany in March of 1983, and I met Bobby within the first week or two. It was a, there was an intermediary, it was a go-between, who I had reached out to because his name was on a list of potential sources for German wine. And so I was just kind of sending my stuff around everywhere, hoping that somebody would call. And this guy, his name was Sam Edwards. He called and said, well, I don't have a job for you, but there's someone I think you should meet. And so he put me through to Bobby. And uh, it was interesting. I spent an evening with Bobby. We tasted together, uh, swirled and hurled. And at the end of that evening, Bobby asked me, had I been interviewing around? And I said I had. And he asked if I'd interviewed with his distributor. And yes, I had. Was I encouraged by the results? And I said, no, I wasn't. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> go so well, the interview. Not go very well at all. And he said, well, call them again on Friday. So. So he kind of got you a job. Yeah. So when I say that Bobby got me my first job in the wine business it is the literal truth. And for that and many other things, I owe Bobby. What do you take from him as a fellow importer? Was there a style that you said, oh, okay. You know, what I loved then about Bobby and have always loved is he's faithful and he has extraordinary integrity. He stands for what he stands for. He takes a lot of hits. Sometimes people make cartoons of Bobby that, that are really not warranted. He and I have certain disagreements. Uh, I think that they're affectionate disagreements, but they are disagreements. But when I look at Bobby, I just think, wow, there's a guy that's done it right. He really has done it right. And the other thing that I have enormous respect for, and that I have consciously patterned myself after with Bobby. He believes really strongly in inexpensive wines that over-deliver. And if you look at what's in the catcher portfolio that can be retailed for under $20, I'm not sure that there is a stronger collection of wine at that price point in the world. And Bobby never made a speech about it, but I watched him taking that degree of care for the six seven ninety nine drinker, which would now, of course, be the thirteen or fourteen ninety nine drinker, and I thought that's a real gesture of respect. He is really looking out for the person who's not a wine nerd, who just wants a really delicious bottle of wine that they can afford to drink on a semi regular basis. And so, when I put my portfolio together, uh, I didn't go after the blue chip or the elite producers. I really wanted to have a portfolio that was vertically integrated really good wines at all price points and pay especially careful attention to the lowest echelon. And I feel really good about that. I mean, when I taste a wine in my portfolio that, that retails at a, at, a, at a very pleasant price and over delivers, I just think, yeah, that's, that's good work. That's good work. So early in my career, when people were contrasting me with, with Rudy Wiest's work, they would say, well, Rudy's the S&P 500 and Terry's the NASDAQ. I actually don't know the difference between those two things, so I'm a little dumb. But. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain that I know it either. But Rudy, who, whose shoulders I stand upon and whose work I have unqualified respect and admiration for, 
um, he put together a group of really elite producers and he marketed them as such. And I could have done something like that, but I really didn't want to. I wanted to offer uh, fun, cheap wines for the fun, cheap wine customer and a few stellar wines for the stellar wine customer and to try and be diligent about all those places in between. And I still do. Was it a goal to work with families or did that just happen because you were working with Germany? I couldn't imagine any other way to do it. So yes, you could say it just happened because I was working in Germany. My formative years of learning about wine as a, as a amateur, I was exposed in the old world exclusively to families. And that's what I thought wine was. And I thought all wines were like that. And when I found out that some wines weren't like that, I suppose the first thought that went through my mind was, well, why would anyone drink those wines? If they're completely disconnected, they're just like, you know, vacuum cleaner bags or, or any other commodity product. And man, you're taking all the juju out of wine if you're willing to, to settle for that stuff. Even however good it tastes. And it can be manipulated and engineered to press your pleasure knobs. But you really want to be... You know, do you really want to be manipulated that way? When this other thing is out there, this wonderful, connected, nourishing thing is out there and you don't have to pay more money for it. So, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything other than working with families. And to this day, Levy, we get calls from people who want us to set up trips for them. And, and I can see by the questions they ask and the way they write me that they're thinking it's going to be like it is in California that there's going to be tasting rooms and a whole infrastructure and tchotchkes and that stuff. And I tell them, no, you're going to walk pretty much right into someone's living room and you'll in almost every case be met by a family member whom you are taking away from his work. Now they're happy to meet you. They love to meet you, but it's not like you think it is, you know, they, they don't have all the tchotchkes and they don't have, um, cabins where they can put you up or something like that. It's very, very different. Very different. And to me, infinitely more valuable. So you go there, you start up your collection of about five or six producers and right. who was in that offering? Yeah, the first offering uh, was, well, it was all my buddies who uh, were willing to sell wine to me. So Strube was in it and Curler Ruprecht was in it uh, very early on by working with Baron Philippi because I had made friends with a guy in Munich who represented Curla Ruprecht's wines in Bavaria and introduced me to Berend. There was another producer who also came from the same guy named Seidel Dudenhofer, a little Rheinhessen producer, and Willi Schaefer and Selbach. And I believe that that was pretty much it. The next year I went back, I was able to spend two weeks, and then the kind of chain reaction started because I began asking people, uh, who, sh who else should I go to? For example... It was Willy Schaefer who sent me to Merkelbach. Terry, if you like my wines, you might like theirs. A nice favor. A really nice favor. And, and that was the first year that I really tasted a vintage young out of cask. And what was I think, that like for you? Uh, it was a, a, an awakening. It was a complete awakening. What vintage was that? It was 1985, actually. A good vintage to taste from cask. But it really was an awakening. And that was also in those days, you did a lot of Sous Reserve blending so I got to do a great deal of that. And that is just palate calisthenics like you can't believe. I call it palate Pilates. 
when you are tasting that way, calibrating a blend, micro-focused on flavor components, the way they interact with one another, in the unpredictable ways that they interact with one another. So I really felt like it was just essence of tasting. And particularly with very young wines that are so lavish and they're so fruit forward and all the rest of it, one had a lot to learn. I mean, you know, I had to understand it to come to understand the, the, the dictum in the wine industry that wines are always better in cask. And you have to allow for the fact that bottling is going to subdue them to a certain degree. And, you know, and then some of the, the flavor components that I listed in my tasting notes might disappear by the time my customer tasted those wines. Bottling would clip them. And so you learn by doing and you go along. I, like I said, I enjoyed cask tasting. It was hard in those days because you taste in the cellar. And I did what actually what, what Schulknick still does. And I, I didn't write tasting notes. I dictated them into a micro cassette. And then I would spend each evening transcribing the notes that I had dictated during the day. Well, that got tiring after a while. And then I started asking producers, could you bring the wines upstairs? Because Shulkinect actually takes it one step further and does it in a foreign language so that they can't understand his notes, which I is <laughs> I know. another level. And I'm, so, and I'm so emotive. I mean, I can remember one year tasting at Merkelbach, tasting the 89 vintage, as a matter of fact, and just, I mean, almost literally bouncing off the walls of that cellar because those wines made me so happy. What was it like meeting the two brothers? It, well, they were shy. Uh, they still are. Uh, it's funny to think because when I met them, they are they were younger than I am now, but they were very shy. But they were certainly kind of willing. I think that they weren't quite certain what to make of me. Uh, I was very grateful to have Selbox to kind of moderate my my tendencies for extreme emotionality. Were but, you their first importer? Yeah, ever like from any ever. country, ever. Yeah, most of their wines they sold in bulk in those days. And uh, many of the wines that they sold to me would not have been bottled otherwise. So I am indirectly responsible for the existence of a large number of really beautiful Mosul wines, which makes me very happy. So there I am bouncing off the walls of the cellar. And at some point or another, the, the thought kind of flickered through my mind, what must do they think of me? I suppose, I hope that they can see that their wines are making me kind of batshit happy and let's hope that that makes them happy. But I suppose that they probably are looking at each other, shrugging their shoulders and going, well, um, he seems to like them. I suppose that's what he does when he likes a wine. So, uh, yeah, it was, those were great days. What was it like the first encounter with Willie Schaefer? My first encounter with Willie Schaefer was um, well before I was in the industry. He was, his was one of the very first estates I visited. The books had told me that Gracher, Himmelreich, and Dompropst were great vineyards. So I took myself to Grach. And so what I thought was, well, I'm going to just ring all the growers' bells and taste Gracher, Himmelreich, and Dompropst. So I probably tasted wine, 15 or 20 producers in Grach. There were more of them than there are now. One of them was Willy Schaefer. Schaefer's wines really stood out. And he stood out because he's a sweet man. And... Uh, about a year and a half later, I went back, having spent all of maybe 45 minutes in his company 18 months earlier, and he greeted me like an long-lost friend when he answered the door, and I thought, what did I do to deserve this? So he's just an angel. He's just a really sweet guy. And 
I really like his wines. I liked them then. I like them now. So when I went back to him uh, and said I wanted to import his wines, he sort of said, oh, dear, um, well, of course, I'd be, I'd be happy to do business with you, but I have very little wine. And they all think, you know, the, the United States is a vast market and I'm going to need 15 containers of wine. And I had no customers in those days. So I said, Vili, I'll take whatever you can, you know, whatever you can spare. And it can be really mingy quantities of wine. I mean, it could be 10 cases of this and 15 cases of that. And, and that's what it was. So, and to some extent, still what it is, because that state hasn't grown very much in, in these intervening years. So, yeah, that's how it happened with Vili Schaefer. It was just pure blind luck. Aided, and I'll give myself credit for this, it was pure blind luck to stumble upon him, but at least I knew what I was tasting. Right. It seems like you have a good palate, as far I as I so. can tell. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, I hope so. It works for me. It's a quicker palate than it used to be. Sometimes a little too quick. Sometimes I have to make a conscious effort to slow it down. It seems like you go back to taste the same wine quite often. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, more than a lot of people. Yeah. And it seems like you enjoy that experience. I do. And, you know, I enjoy the experience because it's humbling. Because... Each wine is different each time you encounter it, and you are different each time you encounter the same wine. So you have those two kind of variables, the wine shape-shifting and you yourself shape-shifting, and it prevents you from being too absolute or dogmatic in your judgments, or at least I hope it does. And when did you meet a member of the Selbach family? What was the first time? Uh, it was a funny story. Johannes Selbach in those days was doing a like a junior year abroad, I think he was at Penn State, studying, I don't know what Johannes was studying, business, I believe. You did a podcast with him, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, he was in the marketing world. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he came to Washington, D.C. For what reason, I don't know. Maybe he wanted to, you know, flog the family's wines. He got connected to Schilknecht, who was the leading German wine retailer in Washington in those days. And David brought him to me. And David said, oh, there's somebody you probably ought to meet. So next thing I know... Uh, he comes up the stairs to my office, a uh, hundred pounds lighter than he is now, with a great deal more hair than he has now, and a porn star mustache. That was kind of cute. I, took, I have pictures of Johannes from those days. At one of the, some point or another, I'm going to blackmail him with them. So uh, he comes up and we start talking and he's got a bottle of wine in a bag and he pours it for me. And I think, oh, this is some kind of test. I don't know what he wants me to say. So he asks me what I think of the wine. And I told him, I have actually no real opinion about it. It's so bland that I can't summon up much emotion one way or the other. Meanwhile, his grin is getting wider and wider. And if you don't mind, I don't want to say what that wine was because it's sort of a gratuitous shot at, at another winery, which... But it was an established producer. It was a very much established producer. This was a wine with all the pedigree. One, every, it was a blue blood in every possible way. And I tasted it and thought, meh. And Johannes was really happy. And I suppose he probably thought, okay, I can, here's a guy I can talk to. This guy's got a palate and he can tell yeah. me what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he, and he won't tell me that the emperor is, is fully, fully dressed when the emperor is naked. So he then told me if I ever got into the business of importing, which I told him that was kind of a dream of mine to do, he said, well, we can help you because we're, we're commissioners and we can consolidate your orders for you and so forth. And so if it comes to that point, please look us up. So it did, and I did, and the, again, the rest is history. It's been a fantastic relationship with Selbach. And when you think about a business relationship with two people, two alphas of very high temperaments, him and me, 
And you think we have had a really harmonious, respectful, affectionate, now familial working relationship for going on three decades. It says a lot about him because I'm not the easiest guy sometimes to get along with. Do you feel like he's kind of the eminent degree of the Terry Thieves portfolio? Like, did he shape a lot of that portfolio? He certainly helped me shape it. You know, there were certain things that I kind of, I brought to them. There were discoveries that I had made and, you know, and, and introduced them to these people. They would have found their way to them eventually anyway. But they also brought a large number of people to me. And uh, Johannes continues, he's kind of my canary in the coal mine in Germany. He's the ears that are on the ground. And we're not aggressively searching for new suppliers any longer. But Johannes knows, if you hear of something interesting, my windows are not locked and sealed. You know, I want to let fresh air into the portfolio all the time. So please let me know what you're doing and or what you see. Well, it seems like you also have a strong relationship with his father. Yeah, I had a very nice relationship with Hans. Um, and he's he's very much a kind of spiritual conscience for me. How so? I mean, how does that really play out? An amazingly good man. Just an amazingly good man. And probably the most honest person I've ever known. Not only un- almost unbelievably sweet, but incredibly honest. And again, I observed the way he dealt with the producers. He was a grand seigneur of the Mosul, but he never carried himself with any sorts of airs at all. His relationship with the producers was always collegial and it was always respectful and it consisted of a lot of banter and very good humor. And, but I looked again, you know, I looked at how he treated people. The temptations were always present to fashion his wines to be more bombastic and seductive, but he never did it. He wanted to make scrupulous, honest Mosul wines that wouldn't get scores in the mid to high nineties, but would be the kinds of wines that people like him wanted to drink. And so he set about his path and, uh, and Johannes has followed it. Now, the, the whole dialect of the wines has changed in the climate change era. But in the context of the climate change era, I think what can faithfully be said about Johannes Selbach's wines is that they are not putting any, any kind of a show on for you. They are just gently, persistently osmosing the purest possible character of Mosul Riesling. And there they are. And you make of them what you will. So for somebody like me, who lays the greatest possible emphasis on having an authentic experience, that is the thing for which I live. So Hans had a number of very beautiful sayings. Uh, and apropos of this business of pimping wines up to get high scores, he would sometimes say, you can't make gold more golden. And he has another thing that he says very often, and this was words to live by, and I hope that I have lived by them, Uh, in terms of how you treat people, he would very often say, be careful, you meet everyone twice. So you came back, and Mm -hmm. how did you go about selling the wines? I had a kind of a ready-made network of retail customers who were associated with this organization called Les Amis du Vin, which published a magazine called The Friends of Wine, for which I wrote. And the chapter heads of the various affiliates of Les Amis du Vin in different cities around the United States mostly were retailers. So they knew me from my byline in the magazine. And once I started 
putting the portfolio together. Of course, I was selling it locally in Washington, D.C. and then in Maryland. But I also had some customers around the country who were uh, Les Amis Devan affiliates. And uh, they helped really get me launched. And it was, it was very small numbers in those days. But what did I know? I mean, I, I was happy to sell a small amount of wine. I just was incredibly delighted that I was able to do work that moved me that deeply. My father always said, the secret of happiness in life is to try and get someone to pay you for what you'd like to do anyway. But did you have a, a crew of people? I mean, right. No, it was all me. It was all me. I mean, I did, I just basically did everything in those days. I did all the selling, uh, all the buying, all the selling, all the marketing, writing the catalogs, putting the catalogs together. I wrote the catalogs on a manual typewriter. Uh, I taped the illustrations in. I made the copies. I bound them. I shipped them out. Did all my own compliance, state and federal, did all my own logistics, arranged for containers, unloaded the containers when they arrived. Because, again, um, I was so happy to just do the work. You know, it didn't matter to me what it entailed. And I was just thrilled to start learning how all these pieces of, of the business fit together. The only thing I didn't do in those days was chase after the money. And... It probably would have been better for me if I had. How so? Because I didn't, I was really naive about that in those days. Again, you know, coming out of the Germany culture where it's kind of unthinkable that you would pay your bills late or not at all, I, f I learned the hard way that it was a bit more rough and tumble in the United States. And if I had to think about that, it would have made me a better business person. It would have, it would have grown me up faster. But... You know, you learn what you learn when you're ready to learn it. But you knew from the beginning that you wanted to do written catalogs. Yeah, I knew that because I wanted to be able to give every pertinent piece of information to the customer for the customer to use when I personally wasn't present. So, yeah, I mean, I could sit with a customer for two hours and we could tiptoe through all the intricacies of my German wine portfolio, or I could leave him with something or her with something that she could read at her leisure and then when we two met, she would have read it and we and had a short list of things that she was particularly interested in. And we could have done some business in 15 or 20 minutes. So I actually, first of all, I liked writing. So obviously it was self-indulgent. But I also saw it as a, a considerate gesture to the customer. So, you know, you don't have to block out a, an hour or two of your day to deal with the likes of me. Here's something I can leave with you and you can look at it on the toilet or wherever you want to look at it. But did you find that people were responding differently to your writing than to you? Were those two different experiences? No, I really didn't find that. Uh, it's an interesting question, Levy, but most people who know me from my writing, when they meet me, they say, wow, you talk exactly like you write. And if people only know me from personal conversation and they then read my writing, they say, wow, yeah, you write like you talk. Someone just recorded you and then wrote mm -hmm. it down. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I never could imagine doing it any other way. You know, why would there be a division between the way a person talks and the way a person writes? That just doesn't make sense to me. Was there a different style than today's style of writing back then? Did it, was it a little... Uh, yeah, it was a little more florid. It was, you know, clunkier. It wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as polished as it is now. And there were various times in my life where, you know, I had emotional upheavals, either positive or negative upheavals, and they found their way into the writing in some way, shape, or form. There was a period of time where the catalogs were quite extravagant and pretty goofy. And 
Uh, and because that's just how it was, you know, I mean, I had a few years of rampant id and, uh, these days I'm finding having published the book made it possible for me not to need to throw everything but the kitchen sink into the catalog writing. So now I'm really looking at the catalog writing as how can I be as helpful as humanly possible to the potential buyer? And in the course of so doing, once in a while, here or there, I'll throw in a little bit of an essay or a think piece or a heartfelt piece. And, but I also think that's part of the bigger picture of trying to be helpful. It's not only helping people decide what to buy, it's also helping to remind them of the privilege of being in this nexus at all. I mean, being a, a professional in the wine industry is an extraordinary blessing on a, so many different levels. And so every once in a while, I'd like to think that some random reader of the catalog is leafing through it and comes to an essay with a compelling title and pauses for a moment and reads it. And it's just kind of reminded, oh yeah, that's why we do this. Because, you know, you can get caught up in the minute to minute stuff, just the grind and the scut work and everything. And there are moments where you almost feel like I might as well be selling widgets. So now and again, it's not a bad idea for, for something or someone to slow down the process and say, ah, oh, yeah, that's right. That's why we're doing this. But did you ever work in restaurants? Because it does feel like you're able to talk to restaurant people on a level that they, you know, they, they like. I have my wife to thank for that. And I never did work in restaurants. But she, of course, really raised my consciousness. And for people who don't know the backstory, I'll tell it as quickly as I can. She was a customer of mine and the chef proprietor of a restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin, called L'Etoile. And she was often referred to as the Alice Waters of the Midwest. And so from her, I stopped being a civilian. Because I mean, anybody who's been in the restaurant business knows. I mean, it's, it, it's a nexus that pulls you in. And so I learned the lingo and I became kind of an insider and I understood how restaurant people think, and I hope to a certain degree understood what uh, sommeliers need and love and how, again, how to be as useful as possible. The other, you know, regardless of the, all the big picture things that I have been privileged to do in this profession, I don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that, that the first priority is to find a way to be as useful as possible to the customer or potential customer. Well, it's also uh, something you've talked about with wines that you look for. Like you, mm -hmm. you have a category of wines that you think of as useful wines. Useful like, wines. This exactly. can do something. We can yep. we can pair it with this. We can do it with that. Yeah. If there's a price that works. Yeah. It'll do the job. Exactly. I like useful wines. I mean, I think that's great. There's certainly a a point in life for wines that preen or strut or need to be the center of attention. Some wines deserve to be the center of attention. But the kinds of wines I really love are the ones that arrive at the table, take a look around and say, okay, how can I help? You mentioned that there was a lot of literature about German wine from sort of a previous era, but then going into the 80s and 90s, it doesn't seem like there was that much critical reviewing or much new literature. No, in, in, certainly in terms of literature, there's been next to nothing. You know, the wine advocate did the job it did. Um, all in all, I think a good job. But until Stefan Reinhardt's book came out a couple of years ago, there really wasn't any modern literature for German wine. And now, of course, there's the Atlas, which is helpful. And, you know, I mean, 
people who like German wines love to argue. I mean, we're all like um, philosophy majors getting together, getting stoned and arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of the pin. And so there were lots of nits that were picked with those two German wine books, but I'm just glad they exist at all. I don't have to agree with every single word on every single page. It's just fantastic that they exist. And I'm not going to be tossing and turning at night worried that the reader will, will get the wrong impression or form the wrong conclusions. I'm just glad that somebody's reading about German wine. So now I think we're, we have to consider there needs, I think, to be a standard reference for Austrian wine. And there isn't one. And I, I can't do it, Levy. I've been asked to do it, but I can't do it because I'm not disinterested. You know, you have your producers. Yeah, I have my producers. And I mean, I believe that I could write impartially, but the reader, the reader you? deserves better. <laughs> right. The reader deserves better. The reader deserves somebody who is literally impartial as opposed to somebody who is by no means impartial but can pretend to be. But it feels like often, and you could say this also for Grow Champagne, that you were kind of writing filling a void, whether it was Germany or Austria or Champagne, the way you covered it. Yeah, as it turned out. I mean, Champagne was was really self-indulgence because um, I just, I liked it. And I didn't think that there were enough grower Champagnes on the U.S. market. And I found an opportunity to, you know, take a region that was pretty much terra incognita and with a handful of exceptions, cherry pick it. Well, so, that feels like your whole career, though. Essentially, like every time you've yeah. gone into what is a an area of just so many cherries, and you've been mm -hmm. able to say, "I'll take these." Yeah, I mean, how many other regions could you go and say, "You know what? I'm going to take these bottles, but not those bottles." Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't seem like a common mm -hmm. thing to be able to do, and yet that's what you get to do. That's Terry Thies selections, right? Yeah, I mean, as you know, as Mark Hutchins said when he did your podcast, um, I get to be a gatekeeper, which. Again, is not because I'm so high and mighty, but it's what I think a wine merchant's job should be to taste, discriminate, offer what is worthy and leave behind what is less worthy. My producers make very few completely unworthy wines. So it's part of the reason that I never got into Alsace, which is a region I love. Yeah, you like Boxer, for instance. Yeah, you go exactly. visit every year. Uh, and I didn't get into that region because all the best guys were already taken. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't cherry pick and it would have taken too much time, you know, to keep one's ear to the ground and, and figure out where the, where the superstars were just at the moment that they were hatching from the egg. So yeah, champagne was good. Champagne was, was, and remains a huge amount of fun. It, I thought it would be successful or I wouldn't have done it. But I didn't think it would be as successful as it's turned out to be. Well, you had some doubts. I mean, your wife uh, reassured you at one point. Oh, no, she guilt-tripped me, actually. It was, she basically, uh, she said to me, do you think that someone will be successful selling these wines? And I said, I do, eventually. And she said, do you think that the wines themselves deserve uh, an audience, a national audience? And I said, oh, very much so. And she said, well, how are you going to feel if five years down the road, someone else has made a success of them and you could have, but didn't? And I kind of said, oh, um, like I didn't have the cojones. And she said, that's right. And I said, oh, well, yes, dear. Now I know what I have to do. So well, the conversation took place more or less exactly like that. So she definitely fired me up and gave me the courage to do it. Because at that point, I had only been doing Austrian wine for three years. So here I am selling two orphan categories 
pushing a rock up a hill with a grand piano strapped to my back. And I was kind of whining to her saying, how much more difficult do you want to make my life? But she focused my eyes on the prize. You know, she said, you should do this. It, it First, it needs to be done. Second, you have the God-given talent to do it. And third, it would be cowardly not to do it. So she, and she was right. It seems like there's been a fair amount of sales success, not just for you, but for champagne in general. Seems yeah. like on fire right now. Isn't it fun? I mean, we started in 97 and it was 0.6% of the market. And for the last year that I have the figures for, which is I think 2013, it was just about 5% of the market. Now, you know, 5% market share is nothing, but the conversation about champagne is being conducted almost exclusively about the growers. And to the degree that the negotiants are able to shoehorn themselves back into the conversation, they're finding that they need to be much more giving with information than they ever had been before. And, you know, I would never be so arrogant as to say that anything that I have done or all of us have done, all of us importers of grower champagne have pushed negotiants into a more wholesome direction but look at what Roterer is doing. Look at what Jacquesson is doing. You know, they would have done it probably anyway, but I think that we accelerated the process because all of a sudden now journalists are going over to Champagne and they're not just taking what they've been spoon fed for all those years by the negotiants, but they're asking the questions that needed to have been asked. And so suddenly it was, hmm, we're not going to be able to get away with the things that we've been getting away with all these years. So I think that the, the, an unanticipated um, consequence of doing what we did is, honestly, I think a lot of the negotiants are getting better all the time. But it's funny because it seems like the champagne side is a little bit more of a confrontational side for your position in terms of how you talk about it. Whereas you could do that with Germany. You could say like, you know what we're not about? We're not about Black Tower and Blue Nun. And you could be, you know, like that. But it, that rarely is the conversation. We didn't really need to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, parenthetically, I once worked at a wholesale company that sold both Black Tower and Blue Nun. And we thought we ought to make a house cuvee and call it Black and Blue Nun. <laughs> <laughs> that idea didn't get very far off the ground. Um, but I didn't really need to do it with German wine. I mean, with German wine, the, the battle that one fights is against ignorance. And that actually is an easier battle to fight and to win than the things that people think they know which aren't necessarily true. You know the old Will Rogers line? It's not what he doesn't know that bothers me, it's what he knows for sure that just ain't so. So in terms of German wine, certainly back in the 80s, what people knew for sure that just ain't so was that the wines are all sweet and I hate sweet wines. So that was the battle that really needed to be fought. Austria was tabula rasa. Austria, all we had to do was just say, if you remember this uh, wine scandal eight years ago, uh, it, it actually brought about an enormous amount of good. And if you don't remember it, fine. I'm not the, here to remind you about it. It's just uh, a fantastic, youthful, old world wine culture that's reinventing itself and producing some of the most exciting wines there were. So that was a blank slate that I could paint on. Champagne, you know, one had to talk about how the notions of artisanality and terroir could very easily apply to champagne. And the only reason that they hadn't was that the conversation had been dominated by the negotiants who were self-interested in not having that conversation because their work was to blend. You know, they were doing pan-regional blends. So I don't particularly have an ax to grind right now where the negotiators are concerned because, as I said, I, I actually find their work to be improving. I do, though, 
have to say, it continues to be distressing to see how they treat their customers. They need to show a bit more respect. And that's different in our echelon than is in theirs. But it seems like the grower market really has exploded. It's good, isn't it? I'm, I'm so happy to see it. I mean, really, I'm happy to see it. Our market share uh, remains robust. I don't mind if we lose market share in the grower champagne category. The pie is bigger, and so my slice of it is bound to be smaller. And, you know, really cool growers are coming along all the time. And there's so much good stuff on the market right now. And importers pounding the pavement looking for good stuff. That said, I do think that there's a bit of chaff that's coming onto the market now. There are about 210 or 15 growers currently being exported to the U.S. Of whom, let's say, 50 or 60 are really first rate. Another liberally another 75 or very good. And after that, you're kind of in the C class. You're kind of, you're not exactly scraping the bottom of the barrel, but you're closer to the bottom than to the top. And so I think there's a lot of people who just have to have a grower or growers and who have taken the agencies that weren't good enough for the importers that got there five, 10, 15 years ago. But do you think we're at that point where we have to remind people that just because it's grower doesn't mean it's good? Like that kind of conversation. Yeah, I think that that's a conversation that um, probably needs to be had. The problem, of course, with somebody like me having it or those of my colleagues who got in on the ground floor is um, it's a bit incredible for us to say that because it's so nakedly self-interested. It's nonetheless true. And so it's, it's just because it says RM on the label and because it's a label that hasn't been seen before doesn't mean it's the new kid in town has um, all kinds of sexy pants tricks that the old kids in town don't have better. So I look at my portfolio now in Champagne and I think it is more than adequately balanced. We have a lot of really benchmark classic producers. We have our share of the avant-garde producers. Um, we are well represented in every region of Champagne except for the Cote du Bar. And why didn't you go to the Cote du Bar? Because it what? seems like such Honestly, a... it just so happened. I mean, we were the first people to import Fleury into the United States. And in those days, and I don't know whether this is still true, but it was a bit of a hard sell because they were a bit more expensive, uh, probably because they were biodynamic. And so we, we made a mutual and friendly decision to part company. And after that, I started kind of feeling like it's a bit out of the way, you know, to go to the Cote de Bar. It's another day or day and a half that you're really going to have to hack out of the schedule. I'm already in Europe for four weeks in March, seeing all my German producers and seeing all my champagne producers. And am I just going to continue to pile on days just so that I can pop on down to the Cote de Bar? You know, let someone else do that. Is that how you feel about Styria as well? Styria, we tried to do, Levy, and, and, and I really wished that it had been possible to do because Styria is drop dead gorgeous. That was a place where, I mean, I set foot in there and I had that feeling that instant, it's like, it's like when you make eye contact with the woman across the room and in 10 seconds, you know, you're going to marry that woman. I set foot in Styria and I looked around and said, oh man, everything in my life has led me here. You know, my soul is at peace. So 
And I loved the wines and still do. And we had the devil of a time selling them, partly because there was international competition for all the important wines, namely the Sauvignon Blancs, and to a lesser extent, the Pinot Blanc and Chardonnay. Because you're competing with Sancerre and like New yeah. Zealand. And, and New Zealand and everything. And Styria was more expensive. And the other wine that I particularly loved in Styria, the Gelber Muscateller, well, there's no market for, for dry Muscat or a very small one. So we tried it with Poltz, and I know that Vindivino tried it with Tement and, uh, and Gross. And I just don't think any of us really did very well. Styria, because it's so gorgeous, has a steady influx of clientele for the wine. So it's very much a seller's market. And the other thing that happened was that the successful growers got bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I started working with Poltz, they were about a 16-hectare estate. At the point we decided to part company, they were over 60 hectare. And this was even before they did the project in Slovenia. So a winery with 60 hectare has volume needs. And if, they're, if they've got volume needs and I'm having trouble selling the wines because they're priced uncompetitively, well, that's clearly an unsustainable situation. So you know, I, I keep an ear to the ground where Styria is concerned, hoping that some, at some point I'll find someone uh, which will then give me a reason to go back to Styria. I mean, it could always go for fun, but how many, you know, how many days are there for fun? I'm already over for 12 days on an Austrian buying trip, and, and Styria is a detour. You know, it's two and a half hours from Vienna, risking speeding tickets. One of the things that's come up a lot when I've spoken to many German growers and some Austrian is that they had some good vineyard buying opportunities, which they took advantage of in the late 80s and 90s, right. as a lot of people decided they wanted to leave the idea of being a farmer and move into the cities and they sold mm -hmm. their parcel and then or rented it out and certain producers got bigger and bigger. Is that been something that you've witnessed that as you've had producers, they have actually made more wine over time? Absolutely. Because you mentioned going to Gra yeah. and finding all those producers. There was more in that day, yeah. in that in those days. Exactly. You said. Exactly. So what's the landscape and what's that been like for you? Fewer wineries and larger wineries, of course. And uh, those who don't have a younger generation to take the estates over have no choice but to, you know, kind of fold in their tent. There was news just this week that Ernie Lozen has bought a number of vineyards from the Studert Prum estate and that the young guy is going to just keep like 1.8 hectare and do a kind of micro vinification, uh, which is quite interesting. But it's, it's an issue. And truth to tell, it's, I think, decidedly a mixed blessing. Small is beautiful. And... It's beautiful in part because the intimacy of scale in a small wine operation permits incredibly close contact between the vintner and the work, presumably, that he likes to do best. Florian Weingart talks about this in the film. He had grown the estate to six hectare, which is no great shakes, but it was getting too big. And it was getting to the point where there was a layer between him and the work that he really enjoyed doing, and he was spending too much time selling and administering and not enough time in the vineyards. So he said, we are actually going to shrink our estate, flying entirely against, you know, in the face of the received wisdom about how business is done in the 21st century. So he shrunk it back down to four hectare. And now he can be in the vineyards again. He likes to be among the vines. That's what it is to be a wine grower. So he's in the vineyards. He's in the cellar. He, you know, he doesn't particularly like selling. 
So he doesn't have to do very much selling because he's not under tremendous pressure to make sure to, to sell all this produce from his magnificent six hectare. There is another winery in my portfolio. I probably shouldn't say whom because let's just say that this is a not uncommon example. It was rather small when I found him, but it was exactly as you said. Incredibly good vineyard land became available at really good prices. How do you say no? Now you have an opportunity you know, to work in this grown crew that you never could before and that grown crew that you never could before. But one fine morning you wake up and you find that your um, manageable, sweet little eight hectare estate has become an unruly beast of 25 hectare. And now who are you? So this producer and I had a very soul-searching conversation when some vineyard land became available and, and part of him wanted very much to buy it because it was good land. And the other part of him said, you know, now at this point, if I do buy it, I'm going to have to re-outfit the press room and I'm going to need two presses instead of one. And I'm going to have to rebuild and I'm going to have to do construction. And now I'm supervising a construction site and I don't really work the vineyards anymore. I've got somebody that does that for me and I go and supervise him. And I don't know the names of my vineyard workers any longer. And who, is that the person I really want to be? And... So that was a, a conversation I think very, very much worth having. I said, look, I will support you whichever way you go. But I asked myself the same question. Am I an importer who wants to represent a portfolio consisting of estates of 25 hectare or larger? And the answer is not really. Not really. Because they have pressure to sell wine. Thus, I have pressure to make numbers. As soon as I have pressure to make numbers, there is a threat to the honesty and integrity that I want to always embody with my customer. If I'm selling under pressure, even if I like the wine, I can't do the thing that I really want to be able to preserve the right to do. And I know how precious this sounds and, uh, and, and you take all the swings at me you want, but I really want to reserve the right never to have to tell a customer that I think he or she should buy a wine that I don't truly think he or she should buy. And, you know, I don't want to cut a 10 case deal for this wine or that just because I'm under pressure to sell volume. Maybe there are better ways that that customer could have bought 10 cases. Maybe there was a better wine in the portfolio that they could have bought 10 cases of, but now I got this monkey on my back. And so I have to sell this one instead of that one. And Many aspects of the wine world are changing in that direction, and they are inimical to the purest. And I realize, like I say, I realize it can be very precious and twee to strut one's purest cred. But luckily for me, I've been able to do it for nearly all of the time that I've been doing this. And I only now glean uh, the, the general increase in pressure to um, not be able to do it. You talked about how you perceive your champagne portfolio. How do you perceive your German and Austrian portfolios? I mean, what's your own perception of what they are? Uh, I think the Austrian portfolio is well-proportioned and just the right size. And I think the German portfolio is kind of not particularly well-proportioned and possibly a little too large. There's a lot of producers in a German portfolio. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's 28 producers or 29 right now. I'm not exactly sure. But it, it sunk from a height of 62 producers at one point. So a lot of people think I have too many Mosul wines, but when I started this, and to a certain extent, I think even still, 
German wine was divided into Rhine wine and Mosel wine. And it was, the business basically went 50-50. So the Mosel is also a very large region. So the Rhine wine business was divided among Rheinhessen, Pfalz, Nahe, um, Middle Rhine. The Mosel business was just Mosel. And in those days, of course, Zar and Ruver. So I don't think my Mosel portfolio is, is too big. It's commercially sometimes a little bit awkward. But every time I think of whom I'd like to hack away from it, I, I can't think of anybody. One thing I will say, and I, I imagine that most of my colleagues would agree with me, no matter the size of your portfolio, it's always one too big. There's always one lost sheep in every portfolio. And so if you have 19 wine growers, you're selling 18 of them really well and one you can't sell at all. And if you say, well, that must indicate that 18 is the proper number, so I'll reduce the portfolio to 18. Well, then guess what? You'll have 17 producers that you sell really well and one that you don't sell at all. So it's like, I think it's just sort of an axiom of existence that however large your portfolio is, it's always one too many. But those things have a way of shaking out spontaneously the way they need to. Mid-60s to upper 20s, that was a big change. What kind of precipitated that change of portfolio for the German side? It needed to be whittled down, of course, uh, in order to give a due and proper proportion of attention to the ones who remained. Some of it changed just by attrition. Some of it was trial and error. I mean, look, my, my early, to the extent that I thought about marketing at all, I took a very democratic approach to it. I just said, everyone is going to be hurled into the pool and the ones who swim will swim and the ones who sink will sink. So it takes a certain amount of time to see who the swimmers are and who the sinkers are. And the sinkers are the ones who gradually got pared down and eliminated. And then there were instances where, you know, the fortunes of a winery went south for whatever reason. And as I said, some wineries just close their doors. Once in a while, you know, you get a generational change that's to your benefit. And then you got, you hit the lottery. And then other times the generational change is not to your benefit. The late Joe Dresner said something really interesting to me once. He said, you have to ask yourself when you go into a winery that you've been working with for 15 or 20 years, if this were my first visit, would I want these wines? If you had to do it over again, would you build a portfolio in the same way? Or were there lessons you learned along the way that you said, huh, well, I didn't realize that before. I, I, I would have done it this way. You know, I think if I had it to do over again, I probably would do it the same way. Um, not because what I did was perfect by any means. But trying to stay a step ahead of your own fallibilities is, ends up being a kind of whack-a-mole, you know. I could go back and say, if I could do it again, I wouldn't make these 15 mistakes. But all that means is that I'd make 15 completely different mistakes. So you're always going to make mistakes. I think that all in all, the way I've done it has been okay. I didn't piss off too many suppliers. For the most part, I kept faith with my customers. I tried to remember to be consciously grateful on a daily basis that I just got to do the work at all, which is an incredible privilege. And, and it has all in all turned out pretty okay. And if I get cranky or, or fussy, I know how, I know how to kind of self soothe at this point and I won't take it out on, on the wine world at large, which was a mistake that I did make in the past. You know, I'd let myself get burned out and then my fuse would be really short and, and I'd do or say things that I oughtn't to have done or said. 
And you know the old saying, when you're right, no one remembers, and when you're wrong, no one forgets. So the things that I did, which rubbed people the wrong way or ruffled feathers, had uh, a particularly fiendish staying power. So you try really hard not to let those things happen because they people just don't forget. That being said, it seems like over the years you've seen a fair amount of champions come along at the uh, certainly at the restaurant level and perhaps at retail and other markets. I oh, see yeah. it more at, at restaurants in New York, but I imagine something like Ohio is different. But, mm-hmm. You know, what's it like to see people come along, champion things, and then move on? You talked about generational change on sure. the, the winemaking side, but what's it like to see? you know, buyers generational change where people come through and they're gung ho about your wines or not. Right. And then the change of that, you know? Yeah. I mean, anybody that, that sells wine into the restaurant community encounters that frustration at some point, you know, you work for six months or longer to build rapport with a customer you do. And then that guy or girl leaves and goes to another restaurant that's in someone else's territory or leaves the restaurant business at all. Oh, you're talking about me again. Okay, I just wasn't sure. All right. You resemble that. <laughs> so um, it goes with the territory, and you have to be philosophical about it. So I have been philosophical about it. Look, in, in terms of my, my uh, restaurant business, and I hope in terms of my relationships with the Psalm community, I could not possibly be happier. I feel like it's um, a grace that has been showered upon me out of all proportion to what I may have done to earn it. And I'm not saying that to be falsely humble. I have plenty to be genuinely humble about. But uh, it's great. I mean, there are certainly a lot of comments that can be made. New York is a, a, an enormous fishbowl, but it's still a fishbowl. And one of the characteristics of the New York on-premise market is, um, I think, an exaggerated attention paid to that which is trendy, as opposed to the wines that have demonstrated their power to endure, you know, their staying power. One of the really great things about the young generation of of wine professionals now is they've accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge and they've stockpiled a gigantic amount of information. And sooner or later, they're going to get the discernment and judgment to arrange all of that in an order of salience so that they will know which information is really important and which information is just ancillary, which is trivial and which is crucial. And that's just a function of time and, and growth and maturity. Are you implying that the buyers are younger now? Is that as a rule they are what you're saying? Yeah, as a rule they are. I had a bit of a dark night of the soul, Levia, probably about two or three years ago, where German wine was concerned because you know we sort of felt like we had hit the jackpot uh, right around 2002, 2003, 2004. There was this huge influx of then a generation of sommeliers, and they were willing to embrace Riesling. And you had all of the euphoria over the 2001s, which spilled over into the O2s. And so we really kind of felt like, wow, you know, we've been pushing this rock and pushing it, and it's finally starting to move. And I felt really great. And then what happens? Another few years go by. That generation is now kind of out of the buying part of the industry. A whole new generation has come in, and the wheel has to be reinvented. So... And I, I kind of had a little hissy fit about that. I thought, well, damn, you know, I've been doing this now for the last 25 years. Come on. But I realized, look, it's just, it's an opportunity. This young generation is tabula rasa. They don't know very much about German wine. And so you have an opportunity to kind of uh, instruct them is the wrong word. You have an opportunity to bring them into it in a helpful way and to try and 
show how the land lies and you don't have to unlearn all the false stuff that they know. This thing I, this I also will say though, you see a lot of people clambering up to the very top branches, the thin little twiggy branches of the tree groping for that which is novel or recherche or comes from some obscure part of the world that simply hasn't been seen before, where lower down on the tree, there's a lot of very sweet, low-hanging fruit that you can reach without having to climb and clamber. You can just get up on tiptoes and pluck it right down. Sometimes you don't even have to pluck it. It's so ripe and ready, you just hold out your hands and it falls into them. And that's the thing I say I mean you know, I see a lot of real estate on wine lists being given over to a lot of wines that are novelties and that may be interesting wines, but they're ancillary. And on some of those same wine lists, there might be two or three Gruner Veltliners. That, sorry, makes me crazy. But do you think that if I'd had this, you know, interview 15 years ago with somebody from Chateau and Estates, they would have said the same thing about Gruner? I mean, could, it could be, but, but Gruner Veltliner in my opinion, at least, did not take very long to establish itself as a classic. And I think it is. The problem was that while it was establishing itself as a classic, it was also, for some reason, for a little while, very trendy. Really trendy. Really trendy. And it was kind of like yeah. one of the first of yeah. what you're talking about. I know. It was the first trend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, you, then, but you, and you live and die by the trend. So, yeah, Gruner Valliner was like, oh, it's a 90s thing. So, uh, but... I, Anybody who takes a serious look at it has to say, wow, I mean, we were wrong about that. That wine really has staying power. Um, in my way of thinking, a serious wine list ought to contain at the very minimum a dozen Gruner Veltliners and probably two dozen. But if people don't like Gruner, why is that? Is it phenolics? I mean, it what sounds kind like... Of, what kind of people don't like Gruner? I mean, surely you've met some people. Very, no? few, very few. Oh, okay. Very few. I can tell you I'm not the biggest fan. I, I appreciate okay. it as a thing. I remember, it, actually, I remember that about you. I mean, I really like Riesling mm -hmm. more than Gruner. And I'm talking about from the same producer, usually. I do, too. You know what I mean? Like, it just it tastes good to me. Like I do, too. I like Riesling more than Gruner Veltliner from the same producer, all things being equal. But I drink more Gruner Veltliner because there are things with which Gruner Veltliner will work perfectly that are too earthy or too robust or too vegetal for Riesling. Riesling entails, I think, a certain refinement in the food that you drink it with, whereas Grunewaldliner is incredibly forgiving. So Grunewaldliner has become kind of the reach for wine because it will function so seamlessly with so many things. But of course, there's no, no denying that the greatest Riesling attains a pinnacle that even the greatest Grunewaldliner cannot reach. But the second best is uh, remarkably useful and, and flexible and helpful. And uh, again, you know, when I look, I love Jura wines. I think they're so much fun. I've been drinking them personally and privately for 30 years. I think they're great. So Jura wine, love them. Great. Happy to have them in my life. As good as Gruner Veltliner? Hell no. Not, not even close. Not even close. Well, I never thought you had a closed mind. I mean, I remember serving you a Grobner wine and you defended it, uh, you know, and other people were like, oh, isn't this wine kind of weird, Terry? And you're like, no, this wine's alive. And, you know, it wasn't what I expected, you know, yeah. you know. No, my, you know, my palate's really entirely ecumenical. I mean, I just, whatever approaches it is like the first wine from the dawn of creation. I 
try to arrive at the rim of the glass with the fewest possible of preconceived notions. Now, once in a while, if you're drinking something from someone you know, you can arrive with very pleasurable anticipation. But even then, you have to guard against reading virtues into the wine because you've arrived at it with such pleasurable anticipation when the wine may be not all that grandiose. But yeah, so, you know, I mean, a lot of the wines, enormous majority of the wines in the natural wine community, I enjoy a great deal. And I, I find them a very richly spiritual experience, both for the values they embody and also the way they taste. But that said, there are a few wines in that nexus that are bacteriologically spoiled or otherwise undrinkable. And I don't think that they do the movement any good at all to be foisted upon the market as examples of soulfulness or God help us terroir. Do you think, you know, well, let me ask you first this question. Have you changed how you write to meet what you see as a younger, different kind of buyer? In my catalogs, absolutely yes. In my discursive writing, absolutely not. In the catalogs, for sure. I've tried to make them pithier, punchier, more informative, uh, smaller, because I understand the, the limits upon that reader's time. And I also understand how few of those readers obtain information in the form of a three-dimensional book. So, yeah, I've, I've done what I can. I mean, I've gone as far as um, silverback old me possibly can do to try and be relevant and helpful to that generation of readers. But they also have to meet me halfway. They don't have to meet me halfway. They don't have to meet me at all. But I don't think that, I don't think the experience of reading my catalogs will be a waste of their time. But it sounds like there's a little frustration with the trendiness of the younger buyer. But do you also think, I mean, you may disagree. My thought is that you kind of laid the conceptual framework for the younger buyer, whether they realize it or not. I mm -hmm. think a lot of those between the grower profile essays sort of set the stage for what the younger buyer actually thinks today. You could say, but Germany was a classic wine region and remains one. It was just unappreciated. Austria was an outlier, but very quickly began to establish itself, I think, along classical lines. When, by the time Seth Allen and I started uh, marketing and selling high-quality Austrian wine in the U.S., this was coming up on the mid-90s, a very strong case could be made that these were among the greatest dry white wines in Europe. So I think Austria was a classic that arrived late on the scene because of its history and so forth. And Champagne, of course, is a classic region. So look, I mean, there's no corner of, of France or Italy or Spain at this point that's really unturned. And I think these are good things. The, the, if it's curiosity and a spirit of adventure that's driving the young drinker to seek out every obscure nook and cranny of the wine world then I am entirely in favor of that. I'm all for it. I think the spirit of exploration is incredibly helpful. But you have to have in your suitcase also the spirit of discernment. And you've got to not get wrapped up in the romance of being the first American to visit someplace and finding virtues in the wine that the wine doesn't have. There are instances, more than one might suspect, where wines are obscure for a reason. How did you meet Skernik and what has that relationship meant for you? 
Uh, a former colleague of mine, uh, Bill Adams, introduced me to Michael and Harmon. We were actually at that point looking for a distributor. We were unhappy with our then distributor. So we went working with Michael and Harmon. Uh, Michael and I share a birthday, literally not just the date, the actual day. And we felt like we were, you know, brothers from another mother. We hit it off immediately. We had a lot to talk about. We always had fun together. As you know, it's a it kick-ass organization. And they sold and sell an enormous amount of wine. And we've had nothing but fun. So when we decided to work together, we negotiated, in, in those days, we negotiated by faxing back and forth. We had a handshake deal. It was fun from the first day. And has remained so. We still do not have contracts. We are entirely happy and we've got it worked out on, along incredibly sustainable lines. Michael is a genius, in my opinion. And how does that play out? I mean, what are examples of that? The move uh, uh, to New York right now, I think, is, is a classic example. You know, Michael and I are gentlemen of a certain age. One could forgive Michael for, at this point, coasting toward retirement. And but nothing doing. He's actually turbocharged his company and is doing something radical and interesting. You know the old Picasso saying, you do something first and then someone else comes along and does it pretty? And Michael was a real pioneer. He did things uh, to that point that very few people had done. And, you know, now there's more and more and more cool little hip distributors all the time. And a certain amount of buyer wants to buy from the people that they consider to be cutting edge. Skernick has become... Uh, a large, a large feeling operation, but I don't think a company like Michael Skernick Wine should have to demonstrate its cutting edge cred ever, for its in, in entire earthly existence. Because uh, everything that this—not every single thing, but most things that this company does—are, as they would say in Boston, where I live, wicked smart. And why did you never move to New York? Well, I, I was committed to remaining in D.C. at the time that Michael and I began working together because I had a child from an earlier marriage who was school age in those days. And so I, I just wasn't going to bail on him. And as we found that we were working incredibly well together without my living in New York, we, we saw the situation as something that wasn't broken and so there was no need to fix it. I've always been close enough to New York that I can get down frequently, and I do. And so, uh, and there's a, especially now... Uh, there's a pretty strong umbilical connection. But the thing I think I want to point out most, it's the best decision I ever made in the business. Michael and Harmon are really amazing people. And to have come along as far as we did, both of us, Michael and me, being alphas, and both of us being in our each in our own ways territorial, having gotten along so well and never had power struggles, we've had discussions and arguments. We've argued quite forcefully uh, about a lot of things. And Michael's incredibly intelligent, but power struggles, never, never once, never once. And so I look at Michael and I just think, this is a person I can communicate with. Uh, I know where he's coming from. He doesn't bullshit. He doesn't say what he doesn't mean. There are no subtexts with Michael and I can work with the man apart from loving and respecting him. So it's, it's fabulous. I mean, I make it sound pie in the sky, but it has been a very smoothly functioning relationship from the get-go. And what about the people who have worked for you? Have you taken away lessons from the people that you hired or that you worked with? You learn, if I mean, if you keep your eyes and ears open, you learn something from everybody. And 
and I've certainly learned from all of the people who have worked with me, some, some departures have been more traumatic than others, but the most traumatic ones were the people I learned the most from. So, I mean, I, I, there are very few people who have ever worked with me whom I didn't feel privileged to have known and improved by having known them and in many cases still knowing them. And, and I wish all of them well, you know, and some, some of them have, were competitors for a while. Some of them still are competitors. But as long as the wine industry is full of good people fighting the good fight with integrity, and as long as we treat one another uh, as gentlemen and colleagues, then there's enough to go around. How many importers could there be for Germany, Austria, Champagne? To really, still everyone was doing good work and everyone had a good portfolio. Yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. It would depend upon the size of people's portfolios. I mean, there's an almost infinite number of hypothetical portfolios you could have for Germany if your portfolios consisted of four or five growers. And portfolios the size of mine, let's say in the zone between 20 and 30. So there's a room for a lot more. I think there's room for more. But if you're talking about a portfolio the size of mine or Rudy's, I think the market would support four, maximum five portfolios of that size. I think you could assemble six, seven, or eight portfolios of that size and have first-class growers. But I'm not sure that the market would support them. The proliferation of small importers, I think, is a good thing. I mean, I really do think it's a good thing. I love it when, you know, when people come in with an interesting point of view and found their way to really cool growers, and they're doing what we've all done, you know? They, they advocate them passionately. Um, the only time, you know, my undies get in a bundle is, is if and when they sometimes feel that they need to make a caricature or a cartoon out of me in order to sell their wine. Like it, Terry only likes sweet wines. That kind precisely, of thing. precisely. It shouldn't be necessary and it isn't necessary. So go do, do your thing. I mean, the, you're making the wine world a much more vital and interesting place. You know, just leave me out of your marketing machinations. I'm not needed there. How much of being an importer also means being a charismatic figure? seems like you have a kind of thing about you. You know, you have a cult of personality. I don't know if that's maybe, the right word. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, you know, to, to the extent that my um, personality was effective, to the extent that I have the gift of glib, to the extent that I was able to work with wine writers and understood what sort of they needed to You gave to them tell, great copy. Yeah, to tell right? good stories. Yeah, I knew I was aware of those things. And use them when they helped the cause. But there are certainly very successful importers who are socially quirky or introverted or, you know, not especially effective, and, but who have done very, very well. So I used it if it was useful, but I don't think that it was uh, crucial to having been successful. I might have been successful otherwise, although I must say... For the categories that I worked with, Germany, Austria, and Grower Champagne, it definitely helped for people to take your calls. You know, and if I called wine writers, for example, they would, as a rule, take my call because they knew they'd get good copy out of me. And so that was helpful in, in terms of getting the story told. Say tomorrow you retired or were, heaven forbid, hit by a bus. Could there be Terry Thies 
selections without Terry Thies? Is it something that can live on past you? I do believe that it can, actually. One reason that I'm confident that it can is the infrastructure at Skernick Wines would allow it to live certainly in a, in a effective business functioning and sales sense. And the young people I'm working with right now, they are, they're passionate. They're the right kinds of people. They could make it go on. I mean, this, this day is going to come at some point, uh, whether it's tomorrow or, or 10 years from now. So, but the point, I guess, at then and even now is I'm not particularly important. I used the gifts I had to sometimes do some sales and marketing shortcuts. It was easier to market myself as a brand in the early days than to try to market a portfolio consisting of 25 growers that no one had ever heard of. So yeah, I had to associate myself as being then, you know, the cutting edge guy that at this point is, I don't think all that important anymore, except to the extent we introduce new producers. And if we introduce new producer, then my imprimatur may be helpful. I'll tell you a funny story. I tasted in the last couple of years, uh, in fairly rapid succession, about four or five really cool Hunter Valley Semillons. And the wheels began turning a little bit in my mind thinking, damn, you know, maybe it's time to resuscitate the reputation of Australia that was, you know, destroyed by Parker and the Galumphing Monsters. And I thought, if I did that, it would pretty much immediately have cred because of the reputation that I have in the marketplace. And I would expect that buyers would say, if Thies is doing it, then... I mean, either he's taken leave of his senses or there's something we ought to pay attention to here. That was one time where I thought my reputation would actually be, would really propel this thing forward. But otherwise, at this point, I would prefer to, I would prefer to write my name in smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller letters. Is that true? Because when I read the portfolio, it seems like your picture comes up full page pretty fast. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying. I don't do the design and layout in the portfolio, you know. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy when there's goofy pictures of me in the portfolio because the meta message is we're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're having fun doing this. Uh, and that's okay. But, you know, I don't necessarily believe that the portfolio should be festooned with pictures of Terry. You really believe that? I do, yeah, <laughs> I do really believe that because, look, Levy, I mean, I'm, I'm not as juicy as I was when I was 35. So, I mean, look, I, I'm at an age in my life where I get up out of bed in the morning and I walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror and I just kind of like, that can't be accurate. Ten years from now, what would you have liked to have achieved from this starting place? Place the portfolio into loving hands so that it carries on. Written a really good second book, which is in process now, that goes a long way past reading between the wines. So it's not reading between the wines 2.0. And, you know, there's going to certain, certainly be a certain uh, valedictory feeling with me and the producers that we've worked with each other all of our lives. And I'd like to, that is also something I'd like to be able to feel that good work was done. Good work was done and, we didn't cut corners in terms of integrity or honesty. That's all, honestly, you know, I mean, other than that, what else can you say? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I left the world better than I found it. Um, there are certainly people in my portfolio. Michi Mosberger is a shining example of somebody who's going to leave the world better than he found it. But 
what I did was, sorry for the cliche, but I just found the good and praised it. Is there a need for that more in America than in other countries as a wine importer? It would seem to be. And the only reason I say it would seem to be is because it happens here. And it, it doesn't, for example, seem to happen in the UK. I don't know whether it happens in Australia, New Zealand, or other English-speaking countries. In the European Union, there's very little need for it to happen because it's so easy to get wine. The logistics are simpler and the laws are simpler. I mean, if you're a, a citizen in Germany, you can telephone a winery and leave an order on their answering machine or email an order to them. And two days later, the mailman rings your door with your wine. There's a civilized way to live. So the U.S., I think, because of the constraints on trade and the sheer logistical um, difficulty of getting wine to all 50 states, I think we need importers. And whether we need celebrity importers or personality importers remains to be seen. My feeling is I don't think very many of us did this because we thought we were so adorable. I mean, we all just wanted to fight the good fight. And, and I think importers who put together good portfolios and who are making the rounds, selling and marketing their wines, will become personalities whether they wanted to or not. So I know there's a lot of chatter right now about the era of the celebrity importer is waning or drawing to a close. But I don't know how that possibly can happen. As I said, if business continues to be done, this type of business continues to be done, sooner or later, those people will become celebrities. I mean, my, my boy Kevin has an outsized personality. Uh, he's not going to be, I don't think he's going to be content with a living a retiring life up on the farm. And, you know, Kevin cuts a figure and he's going to, whether he wants to be or not, he's, he's already a celebrity importer. And, you know, he's one of the people that says that the era of celebrity importers is dying. Meanwhile, his star is rising in just that way. So, you know, it's, I think it's ineluctable. I think it's going to have to happen. I don't think importers are going to be able to be functional for their growers if they wish to remain anonymous. Terry Thies, he'd like to think that good work was done. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much, Levy, for wanting me to be here and for the good work that you do. Terry Thies of Terry Thies Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.